So the final three chapters of Daniel, Daniel chapter 10, 11, and 12, they should be treated as one vision. Some scholars consider this final vision to be the greatest of all the visions of Daniel. You've, you've heard that phrase before, right? I've, I've said this is the greatest vision. This is the most important vision. This is the greatest chapter. This is the most... And, but many scholars believe this final vision to be that. Daniel chapter 10 is really the introduction. About halfway through the chapter, it begins the next vision. So it's kind of an introduction to the vision that reveals what I would call an invisible kingdom. Something that we talk about in a spiritual way that we often make it sound like it's not real. But today is very much real, and it's very much in the background of everything that we do. The things Daniel tell us about, beginning with chapter 10, are quite fascinating. And it's as if God pulls back the curtain on a spiritual world that is very real, but it's hard for us who live in this physical world to believe that they exist. Perhaps this is why Daniel begins verse 1, Daniel 10 verse 1, and he concludes the chapter, verse 21, by saying, these things are true, and it's written in such a way that it means, I didn't make it up, I haven't imagined it, it's true, and he gives it to us. He introduces us to an unseen world whose conflict threatens the very existence of Israel. You understand that while you have a part in all of this that's going on in the world today, that Satan's primary attack is on the existence of Israel. If he can deflate that in any way, he feels he's winning his battle. Well, his experience sounds similar to those that Paul writes about in Acts chapter 26, a blinding light. His description sounds very similar to the flaming fire that John writes about in Revelation chapter 1. But before we look on to Daniel's vision, I think it's important for us to understand the context, if you will, of what we are hearing and what we are listening to. And we find Daniel, as we've seen him before, down on his knees in prayer and spending time fasting, seeking the Lord's wisdom in what he's seeing all around us. Consider, first of all, this mourning that takes place, verse 1, chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, remember how these visions were written back during the time of the first chapters that we read, and so in and out of those, we have this vision written. Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing is revealed unto Daniel, whose name was called Belteshazzar. Remember Daniel given that, that name, Belteshazzar, remember that? whose name was called Belteshazzar, and the thing was true. So it's true, I'm not making this up. But the time of appointed was long, and he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning, sad, sorrow. Three full weeks, I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I, um, <laughs> when I talk to teenagers, I would say, neither did I put on uh, deodorant. For three whole weeks, that's, that's this consuming thought that he has for three weeks. And in the four and twentieth day of the first month, I was by the side of the great river. So in this spring, he was by the side of the river, which is Hildekel, which is Tigris. In your, perhaps in your translation, it has it there. Well, the first thing you notice is that, is that it's the third year. He says, in the third year of King Cyrus. Now, what you may not know is that King Cyrus 
was the one who made a decree, and you can read about it in Ezra chapter 1. King Cyrus was the king who made a decree that we're, we're basically we're tired of the Jews being here. They can go home. Like, like we're done with that. Okay, They can go home. It's not a problem. They, they have full permission to go back home. But remember where the Jews are living. They're living in Persia. This, this is a land of wealth and plenty. And you can go back home to your ghettos, right? Which are you going to choose? And so, in fact, very few of the Jews bothered to return home. They had become comfortable with their new life. And, of course, Daniel, as we know, was well past any age of thinking about, I'm going to travel back home and make a new life for myself. So in the context of this third year, we read about a third world war. Verse 1 continues. In the time appointed, it was long. Now, if you have the NIV or another translation, it's going to give you a really good help in this. Literally, it's interpreted, the vision is a great conflict that is yet to happen. The NIV says it's a message of great war. The New Living Translation says the war was great and of great hardship. It was a time he calls, down in verse 14, the latter days. And yet it will not occur for many days. It's a phrase he used back in chapter 8 when we had a conversation about it. It is a phrase that he will repeat in chapter 11, and prophetically it describes a time of an evil man that will rise. In history, we remember it as Antiochus, remember Antiochus, Antiochus, depending on whether you're from the north or the south, Antiochus Epiphanes, this evil man. But remember the cruelty of this man. Remember this small horn, that whole conversation we had about it? But remember this man, as cruel as he was to the Jews, he is simply a foreshadow of the Antichrist who will yet come and wreak great havoc upon the world, in particular upon Israel, as such the world has never seen. So this third world war conflict is prophetically known as Armageddon. And its image of destruction weighs heavy on the heart of Daniel. And so we see him now mourning in this third week, verse 2. Daniel was mourning for three full weeks. He was literally sick with sorrow. I don't know if you've ever been there, but sometimes maybe a, a, a diagnosis from a doctor uh, a conversation with a friend, uh, someone who's passed away suddenly in your life, and there is a sickness of sorrow. You can't eat. You, d- you know you should drink more, but you're not. You're not resting well. That's the kind of feeling he's got now that's overwhelmed him, and uh, he doesn't anoint himself. Anointment is a sign of, of great joy. Sweetness is a sign of friendship. You can read about it in places like in Proverbs 27, but Daniel was alone in his vision. He's alone in his understanding. And, and what is yet to come for his people Israel, the suffering that he still sees on the horizon. And in response to Daniel's mourning, we now see a certain man arises. We pick it up with verse 5. Now, all this is context for this vision. Verse 5, then I lifted up mine eyes and looked, and behold, a certain man clothed in linen, whose loins were girded with fine gold of Euphaz. His body was also like the barrel, that's a, a gem, and his face as the appearance of lightning, 
and his eyes as lamps of fire, and his arms and feet like in color to polish brass, and the voice of his words like the voice of a multitude. Now let your imagination go for a moment. Where do you think this person is coming from? And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision. For the men that were with me, they didn't see the vision. But a great quaking fell upon them, so that they fled to hide themselves. So they're aware that something is happening, but they can't see it. Therefore I was left alone, and saw this great vision. And there remained no strength in me, for my comeliness was turned in me to corruption, and I retained no strength. Verse 9. Yet heard I the voice of his words, and when I heard the voice of his words, then was I in deep sleep on my face, and my face toward the ground. And behold, an hand touched me, which set me upon my knees, and upon the palms of my hands. So the vision of what's happening here. He's, he's flat on his face, a hand touches him, he gets up on all fours, as we might describe it. And then he said unto me, O Daniel, a man greatly beloved, imagine having that said of you, understand the words that I speak unto thee and stand upright, for unto thee am I now sent. And when he had spoken this word unto me, I stood trembling. And then he said unto me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand. Remember that whole story of his description of the vision to understand it way back with Nebuchadnezzar and to chasten thyself before thy God. Thy words were heard and I am come for thy words, but the prince of the king, a small p, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, this would represent Satan, withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, so this great spokesman for the Lord, Michael, the archangel, one of the chief princes, he came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. Now I am come to make thee understand. This is a different type of vision than we have seen before. This is not a beast. This is a man that appears. This is not a statue of a person, but an actual person. And it's not just the person of any sort of any nondescript person, but a certain man is described. First of all, notice the appearance. I will call it an incarnation for this reason. When you read verses 5 and verse 6, again, pick up another translation to help you sort of get the description of what's happening. He's a man dressed in linen clothing. He's wearing a belt of pure gold. His body is like a precious gem. His face flashed like lightning. His eyes flamed like torches. His arms and feet shone like polished bronze. And his voice roared like a vast multitude of people. Now, from this description, you tell me, where might you imagine this man has come from? Where did he come from? I would think from heaven. Yes, exactly. So we're going to start before we go there, Bob. We're going to start with the fact that this image originates from heaven. This guy didn't crawl up out of the pits of hell. He didn't crawl up on the shores out of the ocean as we've seen some of the other visions happen. And then you compare this supernatural image with, with John the Baptist on a spring day, sitting alone on the banks of the river in Revelation chapter 1, Revelation chapter 2, you go there and you read the description of the image that John sees. Now, Bob, who is this? It's the Lord. This is, I think, a pre-incarnate revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And from this incarnation, 
we see Daniel is transformed. Daniel's companions don't see the vision of Christ, but they're not oblivious to the fact that something is happening over there with Daniel, and, and something unusual is happening, and so they run to hide themselves. It was a terrifying event from all angles, and it transforms Daniel. Verse 8 says, for my comeliness was turned into corruption, and I retained no strength. His face was literally deathly pale, and, he, and his expressions were a wrenching facial expressions. Again, NIV, my face turned deathly pale, and I was helpless. Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 52, read Isaiah 52, and you will see the same description of this deathly pale, wrenching image of the Lord Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross to pay for our sins. Now, most of what we call worship today is sort of a feel-good thing, and I, I'm not opposed to that. I, you know, I like to kind of go out feeling like, you know, I got something today and I'm feeling better about myself, but I don't see that kind of worship much in the Bible. I just got to tell you, most of what we call worship today is that feel-good, pick-me-up experience, and as if to suggest, if I don't go out of here feeling better, I haven't worshiped today. Most of what is identified in the Bible as worship results in the full undoing of the person. It leaves them weak in the knees, if not flat on the floor, and their face is transformed, having been in the presence of God. God spoke to Moses, remember that, face to face? And when he finally came down off the mountain, you remember his face still glowed, remember that? Having been in the presence of God. God spoke to Paul, great faith vision. God spoke to Paul and he was blinded for three days, right? Remember that? This is the undoing of someone who has been in the full presence of God. By the way, most significant worship in the Bible takes place when the person is alone with God, not necessarily in a congregation when you might wonder what other people are thinking about you. Abraham was called away to the Ur of Chaldees to be alone with God. Moses was sent back to the backside of the desert of Midian to be alone with God. Elijah was spoken to when he was alone by the brook Cherith. Jeremiah walked alone with God. John the Baptist was alone in the desert when God visited him. Paul was trained by the Lord in a solitary place of the desert. The apostle John was alone on the island of Patmos. Perhaps, perhaps if we spent a little more time alone with God, we would hear more from heaven we would feel less discouraged by everything we see around us. And it certainly would change our life and our perspective. Well, while alone with God, Daniel receives confirmation of this message. Once again, Daniel, verse 11, is called greatly beloved. What a reputation Daniel has maintained well-favored from his early days. Remember, go all the way back to chapter 1. This is a young man, 12, probably 14, 15, a young teenager, right? And as a young teenager, it says he's well-favored from God. To his death, 
in his 90s, well favored with God. If God spoke to us in the secret places of our hearts, and no one else knows, no one else is listening, would he confirm that you are a man or a woman after God's own God confirms that he has come in response to Daniel's private prayer and fasting, verse 12. But notice the reason for the delay. And this gets a little interesting. I don't want to make too much of it. It's interesting. So it just keeps the perspective going. Verse 13. Verse 13 is where that final vision begins. Goes all the way through chapter 12. Very intriguing. But he says the prince of Persia, Satan, occupies the Lord's attention for the past 21 days, so while Daniel was praying and fasting, right? In that time, this prince is occupying, he's arguing his case before the Lord. Then, read on, who is put, like, like, I'm, like the Lord is tired of this argument, so who does he bring forward to continue facing Satan? Michael the archangel is exactly right. Because what is the Lord Jesus going to do? He's going to go down and appear to Daniel in that incarnation that I described, and he appears to speak to Daniel. Well, now we see a curious message is given. Verse 14. I'm come to make thee understand what I believe is an incarnation of Christ. Befall thy people, Daniel's people, in the latter days, and yet the vision is for many days. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb, couldn't speak. Behold, one was like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me, and I have retained no strength. For now can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as me, straightway, there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Just taking his breath away. And then there came again and touched me like one that appearance of a man, and he strengthened me and said, O man greatly beloved, feared not. Be, peace be unto you. Be strong. Be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. And then he said, Knowest thou wherefore I am come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of, of, of Greece shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth me in these things, but Michael, your prince. Knowing, Ephesians chapter 6, that we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness, against spiritual wickedness in high places, knowing that there is a very real struggle that is always going on behind the scenes, or you might say under the surface. So that when we say something is spiritual, it may sound like it's less than real. But my friend, the spiritual world is very much real. And very much, Satan is very much conspiring to use the stuff of this world 
to undermine the plans of God. It may even seem that the answer to your prayer is being delayed for a week, for 21 days, for three years, whatever the delay. But the Lord is fighting on our behalf. and We know that the battle will intensify as we approach the last days. God now answers Daniel's prayer with a curious message. First of all, I want you to just make sure we understand the context. That is to apply the message correctly. We have to understand the context clearly. It's right there for you in verse 14. Whose people are we talking about? The Jews. Thy people, Daniel. These are the Jews. Israel, not the church. Just hang on to that because you'll see why that's important. The period of time, the latter days. It always refers to the end of the Gentiles, the beginning of the tribulation, all the way through the millennium. And then he says this prophecy is yet for many days. That is all the way through the millennium. This prophecy is concerning the Israel, the nation Israel, not the church. And beginning with the tribulation and continuing through the millennium, the church is no longer in view. That's why when you hear me talk about the rapture, I said last week, it's like a wound clock. Remember that? And around the dial of our clock ought to read, the Lord is coming soon. And like a wound clock, it's waiting to be punched. And the timetable of these latter days falls into place with the rapture of the church, the calling out of his people. Now, with this in mind, consider the consequence of this message. The indication is that Christ is preparing the transition from the Medo-Persian Empire to the Grecian Empire. That's there in verse 20. The implication is that Daniel is fully aware of, remember this is a prophecy that happens hundreds of years later and then 400 years before Christ and how we saw that so specific last week. The implication is that Daniel is fully aware of and clearly understands that this next kingdom also ends up with a terrifying king who will desecrate the temple, who will persecute the Jews as never before, illustrated by Antiochus Epiphanes, a type of the Antichrist. It's a fascinating message. But notice this message is confirmed by the Word of God. Remember I referenced Jeremiah. I referenced Isaiah. Other prophets. The confidence of this message is not because Daniel received it, but because he's seen it alluded to in other places, and it's bringing it all back together. Verse 21, the messenger declares, I have shown thee that which is noted in the Scripture of truth. Noted means it's written, inscribed in what we would call the Word of God. Now, whatever message you may say from time to time, I've heard from the Lord. I've heard from the Lord. <laughs> you hear people say that. And it's great to have a message from the Lord, but if you can't take me to the Word of God and confirm it, I'm going to ask you, how do you know it's from God? That's how we know that what we hear and what we think and what we even imagine is of the Lord because we can confirm it with this more sure word, as Peter calls it, of God's Word. 
So what is carried out in the spiritual realm, we know very little about, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13. But all of it is controlled by the sovereignty of God, Psalm 75. You've heard me say it before, not from the east, not from the west, not from the south. So there's only one direction left, and that's the Lord, as you think of those perspectives. And he puts down one, and he puts in place another. So what is the lesson that we take away from the book of Daniel? Remember the theme? There is a God in heaven, and he rules over the affairs of men. And when you look around you and you wonder what in the world is going on, know that there is a spiritual warfare that's going on right now on your behalf. I have this story I wanted to share with you after the Second World War and a week before Christmas. Now, we're a month before, but a week before Christmas, a lady whose husband had been killed in the war, she shows up at the grocery store. She's looking for a little sympathy. She's looking for some groceries, and she asks the grocer for some food. You know how they used to have that sort of personal interaction. Well, the grocer says, how much can you afford? I have nothing to offer but a prayer she answered, without a care for the lady or her need, and in an effort to get rid of this beggar, as he considered her to be, the grocer said, well, write down your prayer on a paper and bring it back and we'll see what it's worth. Well, she had already written down her prayer. <laughs> kind of calls his bluff, right? And so she pulls out her little prayer and she lays it there on the counter. Now people are beginning to watch this grocer, what might be his reaction as the story continues. And so he brought out an old set of scales, right? He said, okay, fine. He kind of puts the old scales up. You know the scales where you put something on one side and something on the other, right? So in his sort of I don't care sarcastic way, he lays this prayer on one side of the scale. And he said, well, let's see how much it's worth. And he throws a loaf of bread up there thinking he's just going to give it away. Throws a loaf of bread up there. But the scale doesn't move. Well, now people are watching, right? So now he's got to do it. And he, and he goes on until the scale can hold no more, and it never tips. And finally, he throws out a grocery bag, and he says, you know, and he, he kind of throws the groceries at her. And he says, put it in the bag, you can have it, you know, and sends her on her way. But while he, she's piling it up, he even realized that the bag wasn't quite full, and so... He just kind of slides down a block of cheese to her, and she puts that in the bag and leaves. Now, everybody is gone. All the customers have been cared for. And so he gets out that old scale again, and you know what he's probably found. The old scale is kind of stuck and worn, and you would call it broken, right? So he sees what the problem is, but he's never seen the lady before. He's never seen the lady since. And he, in his... Simple thoughts, pulls out the prayer that was left, and it said simply, give us this day our daily bread. Her prayer was answered. The grocer was an old man when he tells the story. He imagined many other reasonable explanations for this broken scale, but who was this lady? My dear friends, I just give that story both in the context of this passage and the context of Christmas and the context of God caring for your needs. Perhaps there have been times when 
the prayer of your heart has not been yet answered. But I would suggest to you that there are many more times, perhaps times you're not aware of, that you have no explanation for. And God has placed the finger on the scale of your life and he's turned things in your favor in ways that you cannot otherwise explain. There is a spiritual world. It is very real. And Satan is using it as best he can to argue against you. But the Lord Jesus Christ is arguing for you. And every accusation that's brought up against you as a believer... The blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses you from all accusation.